Welcome to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. It's so good to have you back with me as we are back into St. Paul's Letter to the Romans. This is part two of our series on Romans, this monumental letter, St. Paul's most important letter probably in the New Testament. So much to learn from it. We're really exactly at the halfway point. There are 16 chapters in Romans And we are into chapter 9 today. Now, in the first eight chapters, we looked at God's plan for the world in general. And just before, in the the final few chapters, Paul gets into really some application of everything that he's been teaching the Romans. How does this work out in everyday life? He spends chapters 9, 10, and 11 on a very, very important topic. God's dealings with his people Israel. This is so important for understanding the new covenant, how relations between Jew and Gentile take place in the church and in the world. What has happened to God's covenant people of the Old Testament times in light of the coming of Christ? And misunderstandings of this and of this topic all throughout the New Testament has had some very devastating consequences throughout history, including events in modern times such as the Holocaust, that a lot of the intellectual underpinnings of the Holocaust came from a misunderstanding about God's plan for the Jews and their relation to the church. And even in our own time in the 21st century, we've seen a a remarkable and and tragic and, quite frankly, incredibly disturbing rise in anti-Semitism Maybe it was there all along under the surface, just kind of a scratch and sniff, and there it is. And maybe it never really went away. But a lot of this has to be drawn back to misunderstandings of God's plan for his people, Israel. All right, so let's go into chapter 9 of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, don't forget, Paul himself is an Israelite. We know this. And so. Pretty much all the first Christians were Jews, ethnically speaking. Our Lord was Jewish, his mother Mary, St. Joseph, all the apostles, and many of the early believers as well. And contrary to popular belief, many Jews did accept Jesus as the Messiah. We'll get into that uh, more as we go along. But let's see what Paul says here at the beginning of chapter 9. If you want to open your Bibles to Romans 9, verse 1. We're just going to read the first few verses here. He writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Okay, so let's let's stop right here after verse 5. One, one of the big questions going on here in the background is... The reality of the fact that, and and St. Paul knows this, he absolutely knows this because he's experiencing it in his own life, that although quite a few Jews, contrary to popular understanding both, both then and now, many, many Jews believed in Jesus as the Messiah, even joined the church, became Hebrew Catholics, if you will. Not everybody did. 
And, and we would probably say even maybe the majority of them did not. Of course, the majority of them did not. And in the church in Rome in particular, and we talked about this in our introduction to the series when we started the letter to the Romans, what were the specific circumstances of the Roman parish, if you will, or the, or the, the Catholic Church in Rome? In the year 49 AD, don't forget, the Emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jews from Rome due to many disturbances related to a figure known as Crestus, which was a misunderstanding of Christ. And so this really did have something to do with Jesus, whether or not he was the Messiah. There was some infighting going on. Maybe some of this even spilled into the public square. Claudius said, enough. Everybody who's of Jewish background, get out. And many of them have now come back to Rome. Of course, Paul's writing this letter in about 57 AD from Corinth. And so... Maybe the church started off mostly Jewish in Rome. There was a huge Jewish population in Rome. And the gospel had spread to Rome even before Paul got there, of course. And Paul's never visited. He can't wait to get there. But by this point, the Jews who were expelled have come back, some of them Christians. And they have found that the church in Rome is now, its well, it's been all Gentile for a while. Gentiles were in the church from the beginning. But now they've completely taken over. And some of the Gentile Catholics had begun to look down on their Jewish brothers and sisters, saying, hey, the church belongs to us now. You know, forget about the Old Covenant. That doesn't matter anymore. So there, had been, there were all kinds of hurt feelings, all kinds of misunderstandings that were going on here. And Paul has been right in the middle of this. But from, from the start of the letter, Paul's big theme here is the good news of the gospel of God. And this God is the same God of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And God had a plan from all eternity for salvation history. And so if God had to sort of start over again in the New Covenant, did that mean that he failed in his plan? Well, well, he didn't really start all over again. This is continuity. This is what's going on. God's plan of salvation was working according to plan. God's pretty... You know, he's obviously of infinite intelligence here. He knows how to put this plan of salvation together. God's plan did not fail. His purposes for Israel and for the church. So this is a, a very, very important message here. And there's really three groups of people that Paul has to try to talk to right now. First of all, there, there are Jews who do not believe in Jesus at this point. They need to hear it. Because if they're going to believe in the good news about Jesus Christ, they need to understand how it relates to God's ways in the Old Covenant, how his plan for Israel, how Christ fulfills the Old Covenant. So they, they need to be convinced. And then Jewish Christians who are already in the church, Hebrew Catholics, you could say, they're ethnically Jewish, but they believe in Jesus as Messiah. They're in the church. They need to understand that this embrace of Jesus does not mean that they've rejected the God of the Old Testament, it's the same God, their Jewish heritage, still valid. But the Gentiles also have to know, the Gentile believers in Jesus and the church, those from other nations, other ethnic groups, they also have to understand the role of Israel in salvation history, and even how the Gentiles were always foreseen as being part of God's plan of salvation, even in the Old Covenant. And so their present experience in the church was foreshadowed and foreseen by God from all eternity. 
So this is this is a uh, really really important here. And, and really, it's about God. This is about how God has not failed. God has not abandoned any of His plans of salvation. And and, and Paul has to ask about this because again. Whenever he goes into a town, as he as he's preaching, and, and we know this is sort of his MO, his modus operandi, every time he goes into a new city or town or village, he first goes to the synagogue and preaches to the Jews there, tries tries to convince them about Jesus, and with varying results. Some believe, some don't. Sometimes Paul gets a very hostile reception. He's kicked out, he's beaten, he's stoned, left for dead. Um, it's awful sometimes. And then he goes to the Gentiles. And sometimes the Gentiles don't like him either. And they want to take him out. There's lots of cases about that, especially in Ephesus. But nonetheless, um, this is this is something that Paul really, really wants to take great pains to, to explain here. So the first thing he does, if you look at verse 1, he says, I speak the truth in Christ. He really says three things. Number one, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Now, why does he say that? Hey, I'm speaking the truth here. Believe me. I'm not lying. So he, he, he sort of states it positively. I am speaking the truth. And, and negatively, I'm not lying. He also says, my conscience is bearing witness here. I'm not going against my conscience. I'm not deceiving even myself here. And Oh, by the way, the Holy Spirit is giving witness to this as well. I've got uh, this whole thing confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Why does he need to say that? Why does he need to, to make such a big deal off the top about um, what he's about to say? Well, a lot of his fellow Jews, don't forget, he is ethnically Jewish. Paul, this is very personal. This is very painful for him that many of his fellow Jews have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And nonetheless, a lot of them, quite frankly, thought he had lost his marbles. Because don't forget, St. Paul was... I mean, if Paul was a young Catholic priest, let's say, to put it in modern terms, some people might say, that guy could be a bishop one day. He might even be Pope because he has got it. He's got, he's got all the training. He's got all the credentials. As a rabbi, he had studied under Gamaliel. I mean, he, had, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He talks about his resume in the letter to the Philippians. He had it all from a Jewish perspective. And he was persecuting the early church, those who believed in Jesus. He certainly didn't buy this. He certainly rejected Jesus of Nazareth as a Messiah. He's standing by as they're murdered. He might have had a hand in killing some of them himself. He's throwing them into prison. So they, they, when they hear, wait a minute, that guy is now a believer in Jesus and he's evangelizing? He's trying to convert people? What is going on here? What, what world am I living in? Is this an, an alternate reality? Is this a bizarre world, Earth 2? No, and so Paul knows that a lot of he, a lot he, he has a lot of convincing to do, and a lot of a lot of just passion and, and 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 the pain of seeing his Jewish brothers and sisters, many of them rejecting his message. You're listening to the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Kale Clark. Another reason why he's sort of not trusted by his fellow Jews is that he has personally brought many Gentiles into the church. So some Jews saw him as being a traitor to his people. And he says, that's not the case. That's not the case. I have nothing but love for my people. He says in verse 2, read this, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That's one translation of verse 2. Why is that? Well, because he, he, he is absolutely heartbroken 
that they have rejected the Messiah of God, who is, in fact, God in the flesh. And so he, he also understands that, that not all Israelites are going to make it. That's why he says in verse 3, the very next verse, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So when he says, hey, I wish I myself was, was accursed and cut off, he's basically saying, some of my Jewish brothers and sisters will be cut off from Christ. They, they will be uh, spending eternity apart from God because of their reaction to all of this. And this causes me great sorrow in my heart. So some of them aren't going to make it, but we also have to, we always have to square this with something that St. Paul is going to say later on in chapter 11, verse 26, because at the end of this little section here, he's going to say, all Israel will be saved. Well, well, hold on here. How can all Israel be saved? But Paul has anguish in his heart that some of them aren't going to make it. And he's, in fact, he's kind of offering to trade his life for that, for theirs. So how does that all fit together? Well, we're going to see as we go along here. And by the way, that word for cursed is the famous word anathema. Some people name their dogs anathema. Anathema sit. You probably heard that pronunciation. Basically, hey, this is heresy. You're a heretic. You could burn for all eternity if you don't repent and change your ways. It, it basically means accursed. Somebody who's essentially excommunicated and, and potentially facing damnation for all time. So Paul, why would Paul wish this upon himself? We'll, we'll, we'll get there in, in just a minute. But let's pick it up now in the next verse. Let's look at verse 4 of chapter 9. Well, why does Paul, why would Paul be willing to trade his life and even his eternal destiny for the salvation of all his fellow Israelites? He says, well, they are Israelites and to them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Okay, so there's a few big, big ticket items there. All, all kinds of blessings that God gave his people Israel. This idea of the adoption of sons, as the adoption as sons and daughters of God. That's really important. And, and it's actually kind of interesting that he mentions this because he has just got done talking about how Gentiles are also adopted into the family of God in chapter 8, that famous Romans chapter 8. Well, what did we read when we looked at that? Romans 8.16, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Children of God. We also see Romans 8.23. It says, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. And so we're fully adopted, really, I guess you could say, at the resurrection. So the adoption is, is, is for the Israelites and for the Gentiles and the people of God. But he also says that the Israelites were given the divine glory, the covenants. And by the way, there's a series of covenants. We think about Old Covenant and New Covenant. We know, and Dr. Scott Hahn has been a big proponent of this, that God made several different covenants with his people. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant before that with Adam, and then with Noah, and then with Moses, and on and on and on. And then there's a covenant with Christ. There's actually seven covenants, really. And the seventh one is in heaven, seventh heaven, I guess you could say. There's the receiving of the law. That's super important. The Ten Commandments, the temple worship, 
and the promises. Okay, so we could talk all day about all those things, but I just want to focus specifically, we talked about adoption. I also want to talk about this idea of the glory, that they had the divine glory, or just straight up the glory. And in Greek, that is the word doxa, that means glory. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the fact that the Israelites had the very presence of God with them in the Old Covenant. And in our Exodus series on the Faith Explained, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant, how God's presence rested over the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, and God went with the Israelites into battle. And so you can look at how God was with his people in Exodus chapter 16, verse 7, Exodus 24, 16. You can look these up later. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 and 45. But don't forget that Paul has already said, again, in the previous chapter, in chapter 8 of Romans, that Christians also have the glory of God. The Gentile Christians have it too, not just uh, the Israelite Christians. Let's look at Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with what? With the glory that is to be revealed with us. So that's that's a great example here. We also see it in Romans uh, 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is interesting. So Paul says in the next verse, let's look at verse 5, and this is the last one we'll look at today. To them belong the patriarchs, and of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So the patriarchs, and he's going to talk in just a moment. We'll look at this in the next episode. Specifically about two patriarchs, Abraham, well, three of them really, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now they factor in to this whole discussion. But the Messiah, Jesus is, of course, according to the flesh. He hails, of course, with no human father, but he gets 100% of his DNA from his Jewish mother, Mary. He is fully Jewish, and he is the Messiah. But he's also the Messiah for all people. And it's interesting here, too. This is one of the clearest verses in the New Testament about the divinity of Christ, depending on how you parse this. In verse 5, it says, uh, The Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It's it's interesting whether whether you make that a comma. There's all this discussion about the Oxford comma these days. The is it the Christ comma who is God over all, or is it the Christ period, and then God who is over all be blessed forever. Amen. People argue about how to translate that. If it's really a comma, and I do think that most of the the evidence that we have from the manuscripts, the textual evidence in the New Testament, it is a comma. So it is Christ comma who is God over all blessed forever amen so this is one of the clearest verses really in the new testament about the divinity of christ and even if that this even if it's a period it doesn't matter there's so many other uh ways we can know the divinity of christ from the new testament but it's pretty interesting to think about and talk about and we'll see how speaking of exodus paul is like moses because moses also offered essentially to give his life for the people When they turned away from God. We'll talk about that in the next episode as we look at these very, very important chapters from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. If you missed an episode, please check the podcast. But we're not done yet. We've got to dip into now the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. Let's do it. Okay, as we open up our Faith Explained Q&A mailbag, I want to remind you that you can email me your question. It's a great time to send some questions in. And you can get me at this email address 
faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on social media on the X app. My handle is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. And got an email from Cherry, and she is writing from L.A. She's listening on 9.30 a.m. Relevant Radio. And it's actually a really intriguing question. She says, hi, Kale. I just received an invitation from a friend who's celebrating her 50th birthday party from 6 p.m. to midnight, but I realize that this falls on Good Friday of this year. So what are the Catholic teachings for attending a birthday party on Good Friday? We usually go to one of the Good Friday services, and last year we also visited several churches and tabernacles at night. Good Friday obviously is one of the days of fasting and abstinence for Catholics. So should we, that is my husband and I, she writes, should we accept or decline this invitation? Okay, that, that's a great question, Cherry. I really appreciate that. Well, the first thing I would say, number one, is I'm assuming that your friend who's having this 50th birthday party on Good Friday is not Catholic. I could be wrong, but uh, I don't think a Catholic would, would want to have uh, such a party, uh, festive occasion, on a Good Friday. I, I don't know. Who knows? There might be some extenuating circumstances there. So should you attend? Should you attend? I, I will say this off the top, Cherry. There is no specific directive from the church on whether or not you should go to a party on Good Friday. So this this falls under the category of advice only. Um, you, you might get different answers from different people. Uh, a priest might tell you one thing. Uh, your local bishop might say something else. Your next door neighbor who's Catholic might give you even another answer. The one thing I would say, though, overall is follow your conscience on this one. Okay, you're going to have to think about it. I'll give you my take on it. Don't worry. But never go against your conscience. If your conscience is sort of saying, ah, I don't feel right about going, then just go with that. So let, let's talk about things that you are strictly obligated to do as a Catholic on Good Friday and things that are optional. So first of all, uh, fasting. As you mentioned in your email, fasting is absolutely crucial. If you're between the ages of 18 and 59, you've got to fast and that constitutes, of course, one main meal, and then two smaller snacks, which added up together, do not make up a single, another, the size of another meal. Now, you, you don't even, you know, uh, your mileage may vary. Some people fast a little more than that. That's the guideline. But if, you're, if your doctor says it's okay, some people skip the snacks, uh, maybe do a little bit more fasting. Everybody, and I believe it's age 14 and older, has to abstain from meat on Good Friday. So no matter how old you are, so even if you're past the fasting age, you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s, or maybe even in your hundreds, uh, you still have to abstain from meat. Although the obligation to fast is not a hard and fast one. Those, again, some people um, outside of the, the guidelines still still will fast, again, if, the, if it's healthy for them to do so and safe for them to do so in their maybe older age. So those are things that you have to do on, on Good Friday. Now, optional things, go to a Good Friday service. Now, why do I say service? Because it's the one day in the church's calendar year where there is no mass. And you, you are not allowed. Priests, bishops are not allowed to celebrate mass on Good Friday. There are, however, Good Friday services. Sometimes they take place at 12 noon, and sometimes they have them at 3 o'clock, the hour that Jesus died. So you could do that. You can do that. It's not a holy day of obligation. 
I'm just being really technical here. I, I do go to Good Friday service, of course, and you can receive communion if you're disposed to do so on Good Friday. But uh, it is not a Mass. Uh, obviously, it's very, very common, and uh, I, I think it's probably the majority of Catholics do go uh, to the service on Good Friday, but it is not technically Holy Day of Obligation. So in terms of this question of going to the party, I would say, well, there, there are ways that you could potentially make this work with, with your Catholic practice. You could, um, maybe if you're going there, you could make your one main meal, whatever you're going to eat at the party, as long as you stay away from the meat. So you're going to have to pass on those really nice looking beef sliders that are going by on the tray. Can't do that. Uh, you may have to go vegetarian there, or maybe they'll have some salmon, who knows, but it might even be a talking point. It might be a way for you to evangelize others at the party. Hey, how come you're not eating the steak? Well, let me tell you, it's it's Good Friday, in case you didn't know. So you could do that. Um, is it is it uh, if you look at it as an as an evangelization opportunity, um, there might be some ways to to do it. Now, some some might say I'm not going to any kind of a party on Good Friday. It's a day of spiritual mourning, as it were. We remember the death of Christ for our sins. I, this I'm not going to be seen doing anything kind of festive. So, and that's also a fine response as well. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, would your friend? Would how much is it going to damage the relationship with your friend if you don't attend that party? That's a good. That's something you'll have to work out for yourself. Um, now, if you clearly don't want to go, and your conscience is saying don't go, then don't go. But if you would like to attend, and um, and I would say if your friend doesn't respect your religious, going back to this idea of not going. If your friend doesn't respect your religious convictions and not going, then how, how, how much do you really want to be friends with that person, number one? But um, but yeah, I, I would say that if it's something you want to be there for that person, um, and, and you can you can sort of make this work. You could potentially make this work with, with Good Friday observances, as long as everybody kind of understands that you're doing this for your friend. You're not doing this for the sake of just being celebratory. 50th birthday is a big deal, and maybe they can't reschedule it. Who knows? I don't really know what the full circumstances are. So let your conscience be your guide in accordance with the teaching of the church, and you'll have to think about it and pray about it. So hopefully that is helpful, but really interesting question. I've never been asked that question before. It's never come up in my life. I've had to make that that call. So uh, it may, maybe you could say, can any way you could postpone this to Easter week? And then we can kind of Party on, Wayne. Party on, Garth. And uh, in, enjoy ourselves uh, without any kind of issues with fasting. Although, of course, we always have to enjoy things in moderation, self-control. All right, this is Kale Clark. Thanks for joining me on The Faith Explained today. If you've got a question for the Q&A mailbag, you can send it in via email, faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com is the address. Or you can Find me on social media on the X app and uh, send me a message there at Kale Clark is my handle, C-A-L-E Clark with me. God bless you. We'll see you in the next episode. And I'll catch you later today on the Kale Clark Show live at 5 p.m. Central, only here on Relevant Radio.